0: Good morning. Don't you just love our new sign? I can't quite see it from up there. Man, I came in yesterday and saw it up there and um, I got all choked up. Love God, love others. Jesus says, Jesus says, that's pretty good authority. Jesus says all of Scripture hangs on those two commands. Love God, love others. And so that means that there isn't anything that I or anyone can preach from the Bible about what it means to be a Christian and a Christ follower, about what it means to... No, God, there isn't anything that I can preach from the Bible that doesn't somehow point to those two commands. And it means if anything is preached or taught that doesn't somehow point to those two commands, it is not biblical. It is not Christian. Love God. Love others. I, you know, I know they don't like it when I do this, but I can't help it. Mark and Diane cursing your generosity in putting that up there on the signs in the building. Thank you guys so much. And John Strathman, John Strathman, who put that up there and still lives to tell about it. Thank you, John. If he's limping, you know why? Want to be like Jesus? Love God, love others. That's the whole scroll. And you know what? We can't forget it now. There's no more excuse. It's on the building. It's in the building. It's a part of it. And now is it in you? Is it who we are and what we are doing here? Alive. Well, that's the sermon. Would you please stand for the benediction? No, no I have more. So cool. Please, please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, and then keep a finger there and also turn to Deuteronomy 25, please. Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25. And while you're doing that, I'll say to you again, good morning. So good to see you this morning. You're supposed to say it's good to see you too. Yeah, it's too late. No, well, thank you. As Craig said, it's, it's, um, it's unexpected for me to see you today, at least up here like this. Because as uh, many of you know, Ed Dobson is scheduled to bring the message this morning. Uh, Many of you know Ed uh, uh, is challenged with Lou Gehrig's disease. And and that challenge in particular, I'm told, kept him from traveling today. So he's home today. And uh, Ed sends his greetings and his deep regrets. He really wanted to come share his story with us, please. Uh, Be sure to lift Ed up in your prayers today and this week. Pray that God will restore him soon so that he can continue to tell. It's truly an amazing story, and we will have Ed back as soon as his health and schedule allows. But this morning, as Craig said, you're stuck with me again. As a blatant, pathetic attempt at forced sympathy (laughs) and applause. (laughs) <laughs> it's always um it's always interesting and challenging when unexpected opportunities to preach present themselves last minute like this, you know. Do I find another guest speaker? You know, if uh that sort of seemed like passing on the burden, so I thought, well, I shouldn't do that. If I preach, do I continue in Exodus, you know, ahead of schedule? You know, do I do something entirely different? So it's interesting and challenging and It's always a bit um, troubling for me, at least, when when I don't feel like I've had enough time to prepare or to sit with and dwell on um, the message. So please uh, pray for me this morning. Um, This past week, uh, I was traveling with our community life director, Ryan Long, and some of our youth and young adult uh, leadership, we went to Catalyst, Catalyst West a leadership convention in California. I know some of you have heard of it. Man, did God speak to all of us in so many amazing ways. I'm sure each of us will share with you, especially in the next several weeks as it sort of continues to bubble out of us. It's so fresh um, about our experience there. But um, um, sermon prep for today, well, it really wasn't scheduled this past week, (laughs) But as you know, we've been looking together at we've been looking together at how God's plan is often unexpected. I didn't expect such an up-close and personal illustration of that this week in this way of what we've been talking about, but I do trust, I hope you do too, that God knows what he's doing. And so together we'll dive in and trust him. Amen. And that one sure bet, one trick for you speakers, communicators, preachers, you know, if you're a little nervous about um, uh, speaking, you don't feel like you've had enough time to prepare whatever, bring with yourself a cool, bring yourself a cool prop. So I brought myself a stick. Staff of Moses. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, This isn't the Staff of Moses. It's a Staff of Sassafras from Holland, Michigan. So it smells like root beer. I've had this in here before, right? If I invited you to smell my sassafras staff from Holland, Michigan, that smells like root beer. You come up afterward, you smell, smells like root beer. So I got a stick. Um, In the end, what God put on my heart to do this morning, uh, interestingly enough, um, you know, something uh, a speaker shared with us, it's related to what she said at least at our seminar this past week. And of all things, what uh, came to mind is something that just happens to be next in Exodus. It's like, whoa. You say, whoa, this morning. Except, it was something that I was going to skip over in our series. You know, go figure. Maybe God didn't want it skipped over. Sorry, Ed. You know, yeah. So. So you're in for an otherwise unscheduled bonus message in Exodus this morning. How incredibly exciting that is, yes? And you know, all kidding aside, really, I do believe that God wants us to hear what he has to say this morning. And and given the, the circumstance of the unexpected sometimes, in this case an unexpected message, sometimes God springs unexpected things on us because there's something in particular that you... Or some of us, at least, who are here today, need to hear. I know I do. If only because I was going to skip it. So let's let's dive in, shall we? Your Bibles are open to Exodus 17. And I'll begin reading at verse 8 to the end of the chapter. And then continue in Deuteronomy 25, beginning at verse 17. But first, Exodus 17, verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. The Israelites have just left the shore of the Red Sea. It's about 40 days later, and now these Amalekites are attacking them. Moses said to Joshua, "'Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. "'Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands.'" So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands and the Israelites were winning, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Now, from Deuteronomy, Moses writes later to remind the people again of what happened when the Amalekites attacked. And he says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you and the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance... You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. And these are the very words of God. Amen? Amen. Now, as we've seen in our study in Exodus, in Pharaoh's Egypt, there are some who are strong, they've got all the power. And there are some who are oppressed or weak. There are the haves and the have-nots. And in that system, in Pharaoh's system, the weak get hurt and trampled on. Pharaoh's idea of how to bring order from the chaos that happens in life, that was his job as chief Egyptian, Egyptian's were viewed as righteous if they would bring order from chaos. And Pharaoh's the chief Egyptian, even a god in their eyes. And his chief Egyptian job was to bring order from chaos. And his idea of how to do it is for the strong to get ahead by abusing the helpless. And God heard the cry of the helpless, the Israelites, and he came and delivered them from Egypt, from that oppressive system. And one thing that God wanted his people to never forget, he wants his people to never ever lose their sensitivity for the poor, the helpless, the weak, the oppressed, and the broken. And so God, as part of Israel's desert training to be his people, began to teach them the importance of hearing the cry of those who suffer. And I think that's maybe why God allowed the Amalites, uh, Amalekites to attack Israel. The Amalekites specialized in slave training. Deeply ironic, if not appropriate, because Israel is learning how to be free from being a slave. And so those slave traders attack this newly free but still struggling with a slave mentality and heart people. And so the Amalekites attack. But they make a serious mistake. Well, perhaps they make more than one mistake, I'm sure, but one serious mistake they made in particular is one, I bet if they could take it back, they would. And the mistake they make is the Amalekites Attack the rear of Israel's people, those who were weaker and struggling and lagging behind. And my friends, their mistake. Well, let me put it this way God doesn't react kindly when the struggling are attacked. In establishing Israel's march out of Egypt and through the desert to the promised land, two tribes, two tribes in particular, are given an assignment. The tribe of Judah. Judah means God-praiser. Her symbol is the lion. So God says, okay, you God-praising lion, you lead the way. You take the front. And then God says, and Dan, tribe of Dan, you take up the rear. Now, The symbol of Dan is a snake. And immediately we go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Because we strongly suspect there's going to be trouble with Dan, the snake in the back. It's not snakes in an airplane, but it's snakes in the back. (laughs) Yet no one at 9 o'clock saw the movie. About four people did here. Good. (laughs) I didn't see it either, but I knew the name. And a bit of foreshadowing even, perhaps. When Dan gets to the promised land, finally, they are given the Shephelah as their inheritance. The Shephelah is that portion of land between Jerusalem and the mountains and the coastal plain, chuck full of Philistines. And the Shephelah is where those two competing worldviews collide. And Dan was given that key place as its inheritance. So Samson, you remember, is from that tribe of Dan. And his story is one of mixed success in interacting, in interacting as God's light with the Philistines. And history tells us, finally, Dan said, forget about it. The tribe of Dan got fed up and they took their tents. They were a tent tribe in particular. They took their tents. They were fed up with being so close to the Philistines all the time and they finally left the area, left their inheritance, left where God had planted them intended them to be, and they went out on their own to take a different land inheritance somewhere else. Well, God didn't plan that. And it's interesting to note that in the list of the tribes of Israel in Revelation, the tribe of Dan is left off the list. Now, I'm not saying they're not saved. We'll leave that to God. But in Jewish thought, at least, the tribe of Judah, the lion up front, the tribe of Judah comes to stand for God's people who carry out their inheritance, their assignments. Imperfectly, of course, until Jesus of the tribe of Judah does it perfectly. But Judah is known for being among the most faithful tribes. And Dan... Well, Dan represents, in the Jewish way of thinking, those people who say in response to their inherited assignment, those people who say in response, ah. try to spell that. Ah. Oh, she did a good job. <laughs> good try. Eh, we're uh, we're not so excited about carrying out our responsibility. They're sick of it. It is it, it, it's too tiring and it's too hard. That's what Dan represents in Jewish thought. Who are you, Judah or Dan? And the Amalekites attack Israel from the rear, and those struggling and lagging behind are hurt even more. And so Moses says to Joshua, first time we see his name in the text, in the Bible, Joshua, go choose some of our men to fight the Amalekites tomorrow. Not sure why they waited until tomorrow. Maybe God wanted Israel some time to sit with this lesson. And right there, in Israel being told to fight, we see a maturing and continued training of God's people. It takes effort to be a community of God's people. At the Red Sea, the people sat back and and watched God do it all. But now, it's 40 days in, and God is training his people, I expect more from you. This thing is about a partnership of us in this together, you, my people, and me, your God. But God also wants them to remember that even the part his people play is still dependent on him. It's still all God, even though he asks us to give all we are to the all God effort. And so to indicate it's still all God, and because his people needed to know it's still all God, even though he chooses to do it with and through them giving their all, Moses climbs up "...on a high hill overlooking the valley where the battle is fought, and he raises his hands, and in them is the staff of God." And that staff, that stick, already has quite the history and reputation, doesn't it? The people know it turned into a snake before Pharaoh. When stretched over the Nile River, the water became blood." When held over the Red Sea, as a symbol of God's power, the sea divides. When it struck a rock, water gushed out. It's an impressive stick that Moses is holding. And you remember, it's not just the stick. Nothing magical about the stick. It's not a magic wand. You remember from our past study, Moses' staff is the symbol of God's authority and power, even as Pharaoh's stick was a symbol of Pharaoh's authority. Remember? And so Moses says, Tell the people, Joshua, I'll be on that hill over there holding up the symbol of God's power and authority. And so during the battle, the following day, there stands Moses with his hands high and the staff of God in his hands. And when he gets tired... Give him a break. He's 80, and he's had an especially tough year. When he gets tired, his two assistants, two disciples, perhaps Aaron and Hur, help him keep his hands up, one on one side and one on the other. And when the staff is up, Israel is victorious. And when Moses gets tired, before his helpers show up, when he gets tired and the stick lowers... The Amalekites prevail. Probably just see Moses' assistants, Aaron and Hur, that day, right, as the battle gets underway. I don't know where those two are. Maybe they're down near the battle. Maybe they're up halfway up to Moses, but the Bible doesn't tell us. But maybe they're watching the battle. And they can see if the battle starts out, you know, whatever time it started, maybe 9 o'clock in the morning. Important things tend to happen at 9 o'clock in the morning in the Bible. Moses puts his hands in the air. And there sit Aaron and Hur. Wow, look at that, man. You know, we're kicking some serious Amalekite butt. And they're winning and they're doing good. Then all of a sudden they're watching the battle. They're watching the battle. And Aaron and Hur notice, well, the Amalekites, what's going on? You know, seeing Israelites losing the battle. And then out of the corner of their eye, you know, you know, they see Moses and he's like, you know, he's resting his arms. And then he puts it back up, and then Aaron and her is like, oh, look, the battle's going again. You know, it doesn't take long. Yes, <laughs> Aaron and her look at each other. Oh, let's keep that stick in the air. You know, we'll get done with this thing early. So up they scrambled to Moses, right? Keep that thing in the air. It didn't take a rocket scientist. They got a rock for him to sit on, but maybe it took a rock scientist, but not a rocket scientist. <laughs> Help Moses keep his stick in the air. Now here's the key. It's not like God suddenly stops helping and and sits back whenever the stick went down. And then when the stick was up, God goes, oh, got to get back to work. That's not the focus here. The key is, is that Moses is holding that stick high. It's for the benefit of the people down in the desert floor fighting for their lives. Look! Look! Up on that hill, why does he go up on a high place? Look up on that hill, God's among us. Keep your mind, keep your eyes, keep your confidence on Him. It's God's battle, God's in this with us. Fight for God. And it kept Israel focused. On that struggle, not being about their own effort, not about their own agenda, but ultimately it was still all God doing it in and through them. And if you question that interpretation, look what Moses does after the battle is over. Moses names something. Either the altar, as the NIV says, or in some translations, names the staff itself. Moses names something. Adonai Nisi. In English... The Lord is my banner. And what's that mean? Well, in Egypt, every temple to every Egyptian god that we've uncovered included a bunch of long poles, flag poles, some over 200 feet long. Those long flag poles ringing the temple with banners flying from them. And they were connected originally to military efforts. Not unlike even more modern battle practices of a soldier, right, who carries a a country's flag into battle, the flag corps is that what it's called? And the idea is the soldiers keep their eye on that banner as long as that banner's up there, you know, they know that their side is still in this thing, and they follow that banner wherever it leads, and, and, and that banner represents the power and authority it's connected to. That's our hope, that's our allegiance, And it was such a strong Egyptian symbol that today, even all over Egypt, you can see a hieroglyphic symbol, a cartouche, that looks like a pole with a flag on it, a rectangular banner on it. And whenever you see that symbol or cartouche, that symbol on a cartouche in any of the ruins of Egypt, that means God. And so for the ancient Egyptians, they would look to the banners flying over the temples of their gods when life got tough and struggle and battle happened and they would keep their eye on Osiris or Ra or Horus or Pharaoh. Pharaoh is my God. Pharaoh is my banner. And now God makes clear to Israel through Moses holding up the staff of God that Adonai Nasi, the Lord, is our banner. And as long as the Israelites kept their eyes up to him, to God, they found a power in them they probably didn't even know they had. And the moment that that pointing to heaven, that pointing to God stopped, well, they were just former slaves again. God is teaching his people a lesson. One interesting connection for us. Later. When Israel sinned, some of you know the story, they were punished by poisonous snakes that came and bit them. And so Moses puts a snake on a pole. Remember? Made a banner. And those who looked to that banner were healed. And so in Isaiah, the prophet says that out of the stump of Jesse a shoot will come, and he, this root of Jesse, will stand as a banner for the people. Isaiah says, for all peoples. He will be our banner. And when Jesus is born, Jesus is born, and then in John 3, right before, perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible, we read where Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. In a sense, Jesus is telling Nicodemus in John 3 and us today, I will be your banner. So as we live our lives, no matter what battle we are in, no matter the desert or the struggle, whatever happens, whenever, the Messiah, Jesus, is our banner. Live for him. Walk for him. Everything you do for him. Lift up your eyes. He's our banner. He's who we look to for hope and power and purpose. That cross where Jesus was indeed lifted up on a pole. That's our banner. Look for that symbol when it gets tough. That banner. Incidentally, we're told that preceding the final battle, Armageddon, after Jesus comes again, a symbol will appear in the sky where all can see it. Hmm. A cross, perhaps? or whatever it is a banner to look to during the struggle that follows another piece when the struggling who were lagging behind in the rear were attacked in Exodus they no doubt cried out and the hebrew word to describe that kind of cry is no ordinary word or rather it describes no ordinary cry it's not just a cry that's said it's not only a cry when you're in trouble Instead, it's the kind of cry that someone makes who is in utter hopeless terror and distress because disaster has happened. And that word is ze aka, to cry out in terror because disaster has happened. Say, it'll be on the screen in a minute. There it is. Say ze. Ze'aqah. And when that cry goes up in the Bible, to do a word study on that word sometime, I invite you to do it. When that cry goes up, when ze'aqah goes up, no matter what God is doing, God hears it. And when he hears it, and when he acts, it often isn't pretty. Ze'aqah is the ultimate chaos that God detests, especially when the zeachah is caused by someone else. That word, zeachah, first appears in the Bible in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, who murders his righteous brother Abel. And we read that Abel's blood soaks into the ground, and the Bible says... Abel's blood, Ze'akah, cries out, Ze'akah! And God heard it and banished Cain. And Ze'akah is the cry of Israel in Egypt, Ze'akah is the cry of Moses when they were going to stone him. And Zeaka is the cry of Mordecai in the book of Esther when all the Jews were going to be killed by Haman. And every time in the Bible when that cry comes from suffering people, God hears Zeaka and reacts with great power. By Jesus time, a strong tradition had developed. They noticed that in Daniel, the coming judge who will judge all the nations, any and all injustice, he will be called the son of man. And this son of man will bring God's vengeance on anyone who has brought injustice. Now in Hebrew, man is Adam. So son of man in Hebrew is son of Adam, son of Adam. And the tradition became, well, who is the son of Adam who has suffered injustice? Well, must be Abel. The one who suffered the very first, at least dire injustice and being murdered. Aha, the Jews said in Jesus' day. Someday Abel will be the judge, for he is the son of man. He is the son of Adam. And the tradition went even further, someday, many Jews thought, the blood of all those oppressed or butchered will do the judging. They will be the judge. And there are indeed other hints in the Bible that somehow, some way, even in the New Testament, that the saints will somehow share in this judging responsibility with Jesus in judging the nations. Now, whether you agree with all that about Abel or not, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he not only says, I, like Abel, will suffer, but he also says, I will be vindicated, for one day I will judge. And you want to hear a really, really amazing thing about our Messiah who will one day get to judge and be vindicated Our judging son of Adam. I'll bet most of you know the story. One day a paralyzed man is lowered down through the roof. And before Jesus raises him up off his mat. Jesus says your sins are forgiven. And some Pharisees there that day say hey what. How can you say that. And Jesus says, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to, and they were all thinking to judge the wicked because that's what Daniel's Son of Man does. But instead, Jesus says, I say this in order that you may know that that Son of Man has the power to forgive. Whoa, and it blew their minds. We so often only read that passage as, look, there it is, more proof that Jesus is God. And it is that. But the punch is, is he's playing with their idea of son of man. They knew very well that he could judge, but they, forgive? Daniel's son of man? This vengeance guy that's going to forgive? Jesus says, Yeah. Imagine Cain coming before his judge one day. And lo and behold, it's his brother Abel. And Cain is thinking of all the rotten luck. I'm doomed. But then as we continue to watch... Abel looks his brother Cain in the eye, and he says, "I forgive you." Isn't our Messiah amazing? Doesn't he just blow your mind? So when Zechakot comes, God reacts. In Exodus, Amalek is defeated and God says to Moses, write this down. First time in the Bible, God says, write this down. And so write this down. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek. I will be at war with Amalek forever. Soon after Israel gets to the promised land, Saul gets the job. His job as king to end the war against the Amalekites still running amok, tormenting Israel. But he doesn't do it. Saul fails and he loses his kingship. And because Saul failed to get rid of the Amalekites, something God told them, don't forget it, one Amalekite descendant gets permission to kill every Jew in the world. His name is Haman. Descendant of the Amalekites. Did you know? And so God raises up a young woman. A descendant of Saul who failed, no less. And God raises up this young woman and gives to this girl, Esther, the privilege of being God's instrument to finally defeat Amalek. And through great personal sacrifice, and at great risk, she does it. And you know, our task today is the same to defeat Amalek, to rid the world of Zaakah. When God hears Zaakah, his heart is deeply stirred, and he comes with a deep. Ferocity, because God will not tolerate for long the helpless, the poor, the weak being oppressed and being caused to suffer. And you'd think, fresh from being oppressed, so fresh from being lost but now found, Israel would never forget to be like God, to hear the cry of the oppressed. Hear Zechariah. But there they are, letting the poor and the weak struggle and lag behind vulnerable. Boy, they needed to learn. Make no mistake, when God hears zechah, he listens and he acts with power. In fact, in our Exodus story, he will soon say in Exodus 22, Do not make the orphan and widow cry out, because if they cry out, my anger will burn against you, and you will be destroyed. And in Isaiah the prophet says, This is the word of the Lord to Jerusalem and to the men of Judah, those God praising lions up front. This is the word of the Lord to you. Why, God asks, why when I look for righteousness, instead I see Zakah? Great wordplay here in Hebrew. And more than just wordplay, in my opinion, the word for righteousness in Hebrew, oh my goodness, the word for righteousness is Zedekah. And so in Hebrew, God says to the strong, When I looked for Zedekah, why do I see zedakah? What have you done to the poor and the weak? How could you? Don't you remember you were in Egypt? When God listens to our country, do you know what He hears? When He listens to our hometown, when He listens to Littleton, Colorado, do you know what He hears? When God listens to West Bulls Community Church, do you know what He hears? He hears the homeless. He hears the single parent. He hears the pregnant teen. He hears the unborn. He hears the elderly abandoned alone in a nursing home. And he hears you and me when we cry out like that. Desperate, alone, dependent. I've exhausted my rope, and now I'm ready to throw all in with you. And I'm terrified, God, and I'm deeply hurting. Disaster has happened in my life. And so you cry out, zaka And God hears you. And hears us. He hears Zakah. And when he hears it, he acts in power. And while God hears and acts on Zakah, do we who are strong? God brought Israel to the promised land to become his witness, his partner, really. He brought them to become, he would say at Sinai, a kingdom of priests. Moses beat Martin Luther to that. He wanted them to be like him, to walk in his ways. And if they were going to be like him and walk in his ways, they, like God, needed to hear and respond to Zechah. Do not forget, he said, write this down. Do we hear and respond to Zechah? Sometimes I think we get preoccupied with other things. I know I do. So preoccupied that we miss it. Sometimes I think, like Israel, God's community allows those who are weak and struggling and broken, even within communities, let alone outside it, to lag behind and eat our dust. And they get so far behind, like Israel, they think maybe we, we, we can't even hear their cries anymore. Too busy being the God praising Judah Lion. It's so wonderful to stand and say, The Lord is my banner. Let's live for God. But, or and, the one who lives for God will, must always hear the zekah of the broken. Israel needed to learn that. Do we still? Will we listen for and hear and do something about the Za'akah in our world, our community? Who is crying out to you? Maybe even in your own families. Who's crying out to you? Za'akah! And maybe once it started really loud and expectant that you would come and help and be God's help to them. But now maybe it's down to a whisper or a murmur because they can barely, their voice has grown hoarse from shouting huh? Who's crying Zechah to you? Your husband? Your wife, your kids, will we finally hear them and get over ourselves and help them? So help us, God. In planning the series of Exodus, I didn't even hear the lesson when I read it. Oops. (laughs) That's too important to miss. In the desert of life, amidst all of our failed expectations of what we thought or wanted from life, in the middle of our battles and struggles and disasters, know that when we cry out, When we zedekah to our banner, that God hears us, He hears you, and He acts in power. And also know that like our God, our righteousness, our zedekah, means that we are the ones God wants to use to respond to and to act in Jesus' name to the zedekah of the broken around us. This is what it means to be the people of God. Look to God, our banner, our hope, and our strength, and look to others who are broken. Love God, love others. All Scripture hangs on these two commands. Even Exodus 17. Well, I'll be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us in particular that when we are strong and you give us rest from our enemies, from tough things in life, that we do not forget the very first thing you told to be written down, that we do not forget that we are in your name to be at war against Amalek forever. That we do not forget that we do not harden our hearts that our ears do not fill with too much rock and stuff where they need to be chiseled out and that we can't hear the broken in their zeachah. Give us new eyes and ears and hearts and hands and feet to respond to the ze'akah around us, Father, to tell them, about the peace and rest ultimately ultimately that they have only in Jesus to share with them His story and our story in Him and help us to help them in practical ways by feeding the hungry and helping the poor and bringing order from chaos in Your way by raising those who struggle up. Father, we can't do it without you. We want to partner with you in this. Help us to be humble enough to allow you to work through us and in us and with us in that way, even as we give our all. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand, please, for God's good words, God's benediction? I've always wanted to do that with this stick in my hand. (laughs) It seems appropriate. It ought to be Shema. Hear, O Israel, hear, O people of God. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. I remind those of you who have been new here since January. We went back to January. Uh, There's a visitor's luncheon immediately following the service downstairs. Uh, We'd be honored if you would join us there. God bless you all. Go in peace.